The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living and then thought better of it. <laughs> Our question for episode 50 is something like What is the relationship between science and values? And we read Robert M. Persick's 1974 philosophical memoir, Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer, exuding quality from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, this is Seth Paskin. In Austin, Texas. <laughs> this is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. Dave Buchanan just dripping with quality in Denver, Colorado. All right, someone's brave. <laughs> brave enough for a simile. I was just copying you. I tried to pull one out of my ass and I couldn't do it. It's not even a simile. <laughs> what literary form is that? Those funny announcements. What is the type of poetic speech? I don't know. The... Trucking it from Madison, Wisconsin. Farting it through for Madison was... I mean, it's not a, exactly a metaphor. No, it's definitely not a metaphor. <laughs> it's a piece of wise-assery. I think that's the technical term. Yes. Hey, Mark, have you given up on giving the rules? No, I have not. Let's have our special guest, Dave, introduce himself by telling us what he thinks the ground rules are. Do you remember them, Dave? Not verbatim, but give, I could paraphrase. There is no name dropping. Just make your point. That's right. Give us the idea. Don't say, for example, oh, I can't believe that because I'm too much of a Kantian. <laughs> you say, you know, what exactly that means. We're starting in early on Wes. And let's see, the other rule is um, be accurate and precise, except when it's more fun not to. That's right. And uh, don't presume that the audience knows anything about this stuff. Be the third rule. I would say that's three out of three, man. Woo. Sweet. I would attach to that rule about name dropping. Keep the jargon to a minimum. Use standard American English wherever possible. Except when you're reading Heidegger and Kant, right? Right. Well, you're translating it then to American English. You're not just parroting them, if possible. You don't say zeitgeist? You could define it and then say it, yes. <laughs> That's part of the common vernacular. It's part of the zeitgeist? <laughs> we should start a, a thread on which one of the rules people think we violate the most. Let's start a thread. Sure. You know, the one I'm having trouble with recently, which is not exactly captured by any of them, but is sort of like the name dropping one, is understanding the authors that we're reading almost exclusively in terms of the other authors that we're reading. So the diehard fans will get the references. And this is something that we were not tainted with when we started this because we hadn't done philosophy in a while. And so we could sort of take each text as it came. But especially with this one, I've like... Oh, okay. Persig's uh, analysis of quality entering sort of at the outset of experience before analysis, that's just like Schleiermacher. That's just like Merleau-Ponty's primacy of perception. The ubiquity sure, of qualities is just like Foucault's notion of power. It takes a while to get past talking about that to actually get to the specifics for me. 
Well, clearly, the partially examined life's mission is to tie all of the major thoughts in the history of philosophy together as being the same thing. <laughs> so we have the form of the good, being, spirit in history, power in Foucault, quality, Hirsig. It's all the same thing, right? Different articulations of the same thing. It seems to me like just in a real vague, broad sense, you can make these comparisons. But then when you really focus in on the idea, you start to see the shades of differences and stuff. And that's where the real interesting stuff is going to happen. But yeah, vaguely, I mean, the suggestions made by the posters on the website seemed reasonable to me. Somebody wanted Seth to compare Heidegger in Persig, too. <laughs> I thought, mm, maybe there's some, they are saying some very similar things about that always already in the world kind of thing. Things are ready to hand so that you don't have to think about it. You just walk into a room and you know where the light switch is. And mm. we, we do most things on autopilot that way. Sort of that primary experiential world. I think they're both talking about that. Maybe they had slightly different things to say about it, but I think it's a worthy investigation. Schleiermacher, I don't know at all. <laughs> I was the only one on that podcast who's here tonight. So Wes did not read the book, so he's not... He's not on. This was actually a substitute episode. Next time, we're going to have a celebrity guest, Owen Flanagan, and he was supposed to be on this time, but rescheduled. So we're very grateful to Dave for jumping in the breach to give us something a mere few days after the other scheduled one to talk about. This is a book that then the rest of us, those of us that are here, had not necessarily prepared specifically for this podcast, but had some background experience in, had just read in our vast amounts of leisure time. Or in my case, and then I inflicted this on Seth, I listened to this as an audiobook, which was an interesting, different way of taking it in. You can't do that with most philosophy. You can't do that with Kant. I mean, you'd have to stop every sentence and like, what is that about? Is there an audiobook version of Kant? Thankfully, no. It almost sounds like someone should make a close reading file uh, <laughs> and post it on partiallyexaminedlife.com for sale. But Imagine. I have not done that yet. <laughs> That's an awesome idea. <laughs> Hey, Dave, who are you and why are you here? I just graduated from a master's program in the humanities, and I went in there knowing that I would do my work on Persig. Ended up uh, comparing Persig and William James in my thesis. And Dave was one of the, has been a periodic poster on partiallyexaminedlife.com among the discussion sections, and I had always been excited and impressed by the things you put up. And I think when I put out a uh, query for potential guests some time ago that you informed me, what, you actually met the guy, right? I did, I did. I'm the, I like to say I'm the luckiest amateur philosopher in the world. I was uh, invited over to Liverpool. It was kind of a graduation sure. party for the guy who got the world's first PhD in Robert Persig's philosophy. I owe a lot to this guy, Anthony McWatt. Persig sort of invited himself to this thing, and then it evolved into an <laughs> amateur philosophy conference. And, you know, I got another call, would you like to write a paper? And so a bunch of us did that. It was kind of had a very amateur feel to it. But anyway, I, I just happened to get lucky, and I connected with him and chatted with him and had beers with him. And we've been in contact ever since. He helped me through, and mostly by keeping me uh, from wild goose chases and whatnot. He's been very kind and very supportive and... I'm just thrilled to know the guy. That's cool. He's kind of a hermit, you know? But he's actually pleasant to talk to? Yeah, he's, you know, in the book, he makes himself out to be a madman, but that's not really true. That's kind of just a dramatization, really. Well, the only reason I ask is because the famous philosophers I've met, it's been a sort of hit and miss about whether they're tolerable human beings or not. Maybe it was just the mellifluous tones of the guy who read the audiobook that I listened to that I am projecting onto the actual Robert Piercing. <laughs> But um, I would expect him to be pretty cool. 
But I do have to do a little digression here and say, who are the famous philosophers that Dylan has run into that he's hit or missed on? <laughs> well, I when I was an undergrad, I studied a lot of Richard Rorty, and I got the chance to meet him at a conference that was at Michigan State when I was there, and uh, spent some time, well, tried to spend some time, because I was really interested in what he had to say. I'd spent a lot of time reading his books, and was interested in his ideas about science and nature. You know, I was ending my undergrad work, and... I was planning at that time already going on into physics, but spending a lot of time on philosophy. And uh, when I, you would read him, he spends a lot of time talking about conversation and stuff like that. He was absolutely non-conversational at all. He was, <laughs> one of my colleagues at St. John's had called him lugubrious. <laughs> and uh, he was in no way opened any kind of conversation with this young undergraduate I had to work as hard as I have ever had to work with the most naive and recalcitrant undergrad myself as a professor just to try to get him to say anything. He always had one-word answers. It was a big contrast to my expectations. Piercing sounds like in his book, and not even just in the one that we read, but I scanned through the first 150 pages or so of his uh, follow-up work, Lila, and in that one, too, it's like the other characters don't like him, and he characterizes himself and through their eyes as... You know, somebody that just is not a good conversationalist and is cold and distant and etc. The character in the Zen book is a huge prick. <laughs> Do you really think he's that yeah, much of a prick yeah. in the book? I think there are times that he comes across that way. Yeah. Dragging, what is it, 11-year-old? Something like that. 11-year-old yeah. son dragging him across country on the back of a motorcycle and being totally unsympathetic to his whining. It is not how I would design a father and son a vacation myself. <laughs> I used to do that with my dad, and we'd like go to the Indiana Dunes campground, just the two of us for a, a night or two, and go to the beach, and he'd let me buy ho-hos and read Mad Magazines and stuff like that. Not, why don't you sit in the back seat, and I'm just going to think. <laughs> it does talk about him like reading uh, yeah. books of philosophy or something aloud to him, or what, what was it? Walden. Wal but, Wal but, yes, but it, fail Thoreau. it fails. He admits it fails, right? It doesn't work. But it sounds like it's a regular thing that they do, like that there's this whole intellectual connection that is not uh, expounded upon. But there are also numerous scenes where the kid is off outside the campfire and he's like, oh, I want to do this. And father's like, the main character is like, no, just go to sleep. We're not doing that. There's a lot of times where he won't even talk about things. He won't even respond to him. Maybe we should get into the relationship between the father and the son. Or maybe that's the secret to the book. I don't know. One of the posters on the website mentioned the unreliable narrator and i think this explains a lot about your complaints i mean what the deal is is that phaedrus is the real guy and the narrator is sort of this bullshitter people pleaser he just wants to stay out of the psych hospital he's just going to do everything he can to appear normal because he wants to avoid the psych hospital, the electroshock therapy, this is a nightmare. And he doesn't want to have anything to do with that ever again. And so he develops this fake personality. His son just knows sort of intuitively that this is fake and wrong and I'm not happy. My real dad disappeared a few years ago and I want him back. And so that's the tension in their relationship. Yes. And we should say for people that haven't read this and we're, we're going to spoil what little plot there is. It's not really that important, frankly. Right. They all die in the end. Exactly. They die in a motorcycle accident with Camus. Um, <laughs> so the, the thing is, a memoir while the guy is driving his son cross country, but the whole backstory, some of which he reveals, he's sort of giving his intellectual history. 
And so part of this intellectual history is he studied some philosophy and he, he taught at a university rhetoric and et cetera. But then he basically had a mental breakdown. And so all this is happening after he went through this electroshock treatment, which he says erased his personality, essentially made him into a different person. So he refers to his earlier self as Phaedrus. It's halfway through the book before it's even clear that he's talking about himself. And then he doesn't really admit that it is the same personality or doesn't feel like that until pretty much the end. I would call the book an intellectual biography. And then his intellectual life is divided into two parts, before and after the electroshock therapy. And this really happened. He was uh, tested like a 170 IQ. He went to college when he was 14. He was studying chemistry and physics and things like that. And he got real stuck on the question of where is the foundation of science? What I expected, you know, he's 14 years old. What I expected before I came here to college was to find like the truth, the scientific truth. And what I'm discovering instead is that there's an endless proliferation of hypotheses for any set of data. There's no end to it. So how do you know which is the right hypothesis? How do you know to even what to test? You know, his 14-year-old mind just kind of can't handle this, and he's neglecting his homework, and he flunks out, and then when he's old enough, he joins the army, encounters some interesting people over in Korea who expose him to, for the first time in his life to some Eastern ideas. All the way back on the troop ship, he's reading FSC Northrop's The Meeting of the East and West, and this changed his life. When he got back, he re-enrolled in college, and now he's going to study philosophy and not science. He even goes to India to study Eastern philosophy. He gets no answers there. And he finally gives up all these big questions he has about, you know, what's true and what's right and how should we live. He gives up on all that as a young middle-aged man with a couple of kids. And this is when he goes to Bozeman to teach rhetoric. So by the time he gets there, he's forgotten about all that stuff. He's just settling into a comfortable middle-class lifestyle. And then this uh, colleague of his... Ask him, are you teaching your students quality? <laughs> he's a teacher of rhetoric, a teacher of in composition 101, you know, it's just freshmen. But because of his background, this question just blows his mind. And then uh, this leads him to quit his job at, the, at Bozeman and he goes to Chicago to study philosophy at the PhD level, to study the ancients, Plato and Aristotle and whatnot. And that's when he finally sort of reaches the answer that he's been looking for. That's when he... Well, either he goes insane and has a psychotic event or he has an enlightenment experience, depending on how you look at it, depending on how you want to interpret it. And Persig himself says that he will not dispute either interpretation. It's pitched in the book that the psychotic break was a direct result of the ideas involved. Mm -hmm. That they're so revolutionary and so mind-blowing that his mind was actually blown. <laughs> and uh, I find that just, it seemed like a bit of rhetorical drama to me. It did not, that's exactly. not the way mental illness actually works. You don't, can get obsessed about certain, and he sounds like this at other points in the book, that now I can consider these ideas with a cool head and just kind of thresh out their philosophical implications. But back then I just fixed on this thing and just couldn't let it go. And it just occluded everything else. And clearly that's not a result of the idea itself then, because it's the same idea in both places, but it's uh, what the mind that is grasping it is doing. It's not clear to me that he doesn't struggle with getting obsessed by the idea again at the end. But I do want to say that that part of the book, it's a big book. <laughs> There's sort of interspersed current time 
descriptions of the journey with his son and with this other couple with these recollections about Phaedrus as he builds up the history and explains. It's almost two stories interwoven. But mm -hmm. the part where other teacher asks him if he's teaching quality and he takes that question so seriously and it becomes this issue for him, I actually found that very charming and compelling. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because he's not sort of going to the textbooks or the history of philosophy to grapple with the traditional questions and problems and issues. He's just, this issue just comes up in the course of his work life. You know, he goes through a practical phase where he kind of works that out in the classroom. What does that mean in terms of writing essays? And then he goes into this philosophical phase where he's studying at the university. And, and then he goes into this mystical phase. And this is where we're supposed to believe, you know, where the insanity comes in. He comes to the conclusion, you know, late after the second book in discussions that his work is a version of the perennial philosophy, which is it's a kind of non-theistic mysticism when he gets to that final phase. So, we, yeah, we've talked about that on some of our episodes as the sort of apophatic moment. Every religion has a, a sort of a mystical branch or a mystical strain in it such that, for instance, God is just so huge that there's, no, there's nothing we can even say about him. And then any, even the word God is just a, is a symbol, is an abstraction. But the truth of the religion is just something that is so primal and huge that all we can really do is sort of stand in awe of it and see how that affects our lives. Maybe we should rewind a little bit and kind of build up to it. So we have kind of the outline of the story of the book. So let's talk a little bit about how he gets caught up in the idea of what it means to be teaching quality and why this becomes such a problem for him. I have a suggestion to get at that question, which involves rewinding a little bit to just say a little bit about the very beginning of the journey, which would get to why the word motorcycle and maintenance is in the beginning. It's in the title. <laughs> okay. Sure. <laughs> the tie for me to that experience in Bozeman and the question of quality is brought up in sort of example in the discussion about tuning motorcycles and the way in which he engages in it and thinks about it and reflects on his own experience with it and what is good and bad about it alongside his friend John, who sort of refuses to do such things. And he frames this whole thing from the big picture view and this sort of romantic versus classical view, contrasting a kind of intuitive versus scientific. He has a number of buzzwords, jargony words about it. But what I found compelling was he was right about the way in which you pay attention to a machine. And I guess for me, it was the way in which he was attentive in a particular way to the behavior and the operation of it with, on the one hand, a motion towards understanding and manipulating, but not with a point of view of conquering. So it was a, a displacement from the, you know, sort of the Baconian or Cartesian notion of science as conquering nature and making it submit to your intellect. But it came hand in hand with an understanding of manipulation and technique that was also coupled with a genuine sense of listening and attentiveness to sort of what was going on, both those things at the same time. I read this book before I started writing Motorcycles and then 
read it again after I started riding motorcycles. And then I read it again most recently. And I find that his description of that kind of interaction with the technical world and the way in which you are a successful mechanic was right on. And I think that has a lot to do with both the bridge that he wants to pose between science and philosophy and the way in which we interact with the world as a thing outside of ourselves, but also have an intellect with respect to. I want to try to explain a little of the context there before. I guess the initial problem that's posed is this alienation that people often feel, especially in the hippie age when this was written. And I guess the ride itself was supposed to be taking place in 1968. So it was very much a buck the system, whatever. He uses the hip versus square. That was the year of my birth, baby. It was the year of my <laughs> birth, too. So... You know, he's talking about his friends that he's riding with and their technophobia, that that's the way that they react to this being in, in a world with things that you no longer understand. He's saying, no, you can still be groovy and understand the technical mm -hmm. details as well. In fact, it's a whole wonderland that is open to you. The beauty of the structure of something is just as groovy as the uh, surface appearances. It's kind of like the difference between letting the beat of a song just carry you and grooving it on that way and listening for how all the structure of the different instruments work together. The analysis doesn't have to ruin the experience for you. In fact, you can make it all the more rich. Yeah, and I, th I thought you would be into this, Dylan. I was not surprised that you'd read this multiple times because Dylan, who is my brother-in-law, so I have some personal insight into his behavior, but this, <laughs> this guy will like redo his kitchen himself, redo his porch himself. I can replace batteries on things. Like I have no, I'm so, but I see you as a guy that is just not afraid to uh, unalienate himself from the tools around him. Well, thank you. <laughs> Alienation is definitely the thing he's trying to counter here. He's talking about this identifying with the thing, which really kind of just means that you really give a shit. If you can't fix this thing, you're, you're going to feel bad about it because you love the thing and you want to go someplace on it. And of course, the bike is just a metaphor for everything that you work on. And I would stress not just the working on, but the attentiveness, mm -hmm. the maintenance part of it, right? So a big deal at the beginning of this book is the way in which he talks about the conflict between him and John taking care of their machines mm -hmm. and then... You also read in the narrative about just his activity of doing this. He's riding along and he hears the sound of it. It just doesn't sound quite right. And he needs to make a judgment. Well, is that not sounding quite right? Because, well, we're at a higher altitude. And so the motorcycle is running the way it's supposed to. But it's sounding different because it's in a different environment. Or are the tappets loose? Because... It actually needs to be tuned up differently. And should I manipulate it or give it some adjustment because I am at a higher altitude? That attentiveness to its own activity is what I find compelling. And the way he phrases it is my experience with the way any good mechanic actually behaves or any good carpenter actually behaves is a kind of constant feedback Mm -hmm. and listening to attentiveness to the activity. So when you hear a carpenter or sculptor talk about the sculpture came out of the stone, it's a kind of attentiveness to what fits for that particular situation. So in a carpenter or a mechanic, they'll walk into your house or have your car drive up. They'll say, oh, that's, not, that's running really good. Or that sounds like your carburetor is running a little bit rich. Or they'll notice things about the way your house is constructed. 
And that's just part of their attentiveness to their surroundings. And that becomes even heightened when they're actually partaking of that activity. And it's important too, Dylan, that he's making an argument in favor of this attentiveness being available to us through technology. Yes. That in order to be attuned to things, you have to go back to nature. And he's saying, no, you can be attuned to technology. Technology is part of the organic structure of things. You shouldn't be willfully ignorant. You're not going to be a better mechanic by imagining that the carburetor is like a woman and you're going to make love to the carburetor and therefore you'll understand <laughs> it, right? Is that how you understand women? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, what I'm thinking of is it's a common trope for musicians in my experience about the kind of way in which you groove on learning how to play the instrument and you attend to it the way you would attend to a woman because it's a kind of sexual mystical experience. And there's an attentiveness, but it's not one, as you're pointing out, it's not absent technology and techne in the sense of a artful application of practical knowledge. This is uh, the classic and romantic that he plays with throughout the text. And it's also the theoretic and the aesthetic. Those are the two main categories that he learned from Northrop, the uh, meaning of okay. the East and West. This is a guy from Yale, by the way, a pretty underrated dude. And Persick says that, you know, his book... Zen in the Art is basically a popularization of Northrop's difficult book, which is just a huge monster of a thing. I've never read it. But he's popularizing something very specific. If you want to know the you know real meat and potatoes of what this guy is saying, you go read Northrop. There's no reason to, like his buddy John and like so many people in that era who were you know, dressing like Indians and wanting to live in teepees and stuff like that. That is a total rejection of technology. And intellect. It's, there's something profoundly anti-intellectual about that. And he's trying to say, that's a symptom of a problem. And the problem is real. we got a cultural crisis going on here because uh, there is something terribly square about our ways of thinking, about our technology, about our science. Something so square that it's alienating. It makes a lot of people very unhappy. They feel uh, overwhelmed and out of control. And there's all these things everywhere they go that they don't understand. But he's saying running from that is not the way to go. He felt because of his scientific background that he could face this problem and come up with a solution. You're talking about attentiveness. You can picture a very different story coming out of this where he's talking about the attentiveness that he pays to his son and his companions and how he's so in tune to their needs and things. And I find it interesting that the way he's talking about this attentiveness, oh, you know, I understand it both on a romantic and classical levels and can merge those two, that those do not apply easily to people. Somebody who is like a psychoanalyst doesn't necessarily relate better to their child because they can you know, understand them on an analytical level and sort of merging that with the effective. Those are just clearly very different things. I sort of disagree, actually. I think that he uh, understands, well, I mean, I guess we have the story only from his perspective and it would make a difference to have it from Chris's perspective. And I'd have to think about whether or not he always misjudges what he should be doing. I mean, there are times when Chris just throws a tantrum. So he ignores the tantrum and lets the, lets the kid deal with it. You know, the fact the book records the thoughts doesn't mean that that's all that was necessarily going on in the uh, in the interactions between them. You know, that so you can't really you draw that conclusion. But still, the fact is that he, he says he has trouble relating to other people. And that's what a lot of the, the story is about. 
When the book ends, it's the triumphant ending, supposedly, is when Chris finally, the son, asks him, were you really insane? And the narrator answers for the first time ever, no, I wasn't. I wasn't insane. And, you know, everything I said was true. And at that point, he allows Chris to get back on the motorcycle, this time without the helmet. And this time, he doesn't even have to sit down. Chris is standing up as they're winding through the redwoods. And he realizes, that, you know, this poor kid has just been staring at the back of my helmet through the whole trip. <laughs> of course he's not having a good time. <laughs> you know, but now he's, you know, he's got this helmet off and the air is blowing through his hair and he's smelling everything. And he can see up ahead, you know, what's coming in the road. He's got the perspective of the driver for the first time instead of the back of somebody's coat and helmet. And so this is, I think, when the narrator finally sort of gives up that fraudulent personality and confesses, you know, I'm just doing this to stay out of the hospital and he wasn't insane and I believed what he said and blah, blah. That's when Chris can sort of have some peace. That's when he gets his father back. Maybe we should actually get to what his view of quality is. So we already talked about it as this indefinable mystical thing that happens before any sort of analysis of experience. And we gave a few of the comparisons of that to Eastern and some of the Western folks, but he has much more to say about it than that. Because I mean, just the fact that he calls it quality, it means it's not just this inexpressible thing. It has a value, a positive value or a negative value. And I was a little unclear. I mean, the word quality, he seems to talk about it like it's just a yes-no rating like that. But there's also the word qualia with the, the qualitative character of things, which you could say, you know, you get an overall sense, which is not just a yay or nay. It's a very complicated, even if you don't want to say like it's broken into parts, it's unanalyzed, right? Do you think there's support in his writings that he definitely just means yay or nay, or it could be something else? It's kind of like the unanalyzed totality is aesthetically charged, as you say, positive or negative. You know, this is really good. And then you figure out why it's really good later upon reflection. But is it just the positive or negative, or does it have a character more specific than that? I mean, you can't put your finger on it and articulate it, but it's a very specific feeling tone. Like I say, aesthetically charged. There's all kinds of grades in there. It's not just good or bad. It's all kinds of feelings. So it does have more than just a positive or negative, though it does have that. It has lots of other characteristics. It's just you can't pick them out because it's unanalyzed, right? You don't know it by its properties. It's just something you experience directly. Right. And I think the idea is, in the case of motorcycle maintenance or whatever else that you're working on, is you... You're not really seeing it or hearing it exactly, but you're in touch with this. You're following the quality. And, you know, this doesn't exclude thought. And when I say it's unanalyzed or pre-intellectual, I don't mean that, you know, there's a total absence of thought. But you're, you know, the front edge of your experience is sort of what's dominating. Could I read a, I have a quote from chapter 20 on what you're saying, if, if that's all right. Please. Text? What are you? <laughs> he says, this is in chapter 20, at the cutting edge of time, there must be a kind of non-intellectual awareness, which he called awareness of quality. You can't be aware that you've seen a tree until after you've seen the tree. And between the instant of vision and instant of awareness, there must be a time lag. The past exists only in our memories. The future only in our plans. The present is our only reality. The tree that you are aware of intellectually, because of that small time lag, is always in the past and therefore is always unreal. Any intellectually conceived object is always in the past and therefore unreal. Reality is always the moment of vision 
before the intellectualization takes place. There is no other reality. Since all intellectually identifiable things must emerge from this pre-intellectual reality, quality is the parent, the source of all subjects and objects. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. The drive to go further and reach higher. The same thing that inspires you inspires us. At Strayer University, we're always searching for new ways to make education more affordable. That's why we offer access to up to 10 no-cost gen ed courses to help you save time and money so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. No-cost gen ed provided by Strayer University affiliates of field learning. Eligibility rules apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEF.